0: Many of the policies that we're still operating under are still racist policies. It's
1: the same now 34 years! And
0: they begin to recognize that they had been moved from pillar to post. We lost our home,
2: and we also lost our community.
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Our
2: Fires. I'm Noah Dunham. What you're about to hear is the first episode of a three-part audio documentary series exploring the effects of displacement on Portland, Oregon's black community. This series has been approximately five years in the making, and we want to send a thank you in advance to everyone who helped out along the way. We talked to a lot of folks, and many voices were left on the cutting room floor, but all of them have contributed to this show. And now I want to hand it off to the host of our show, James Dixon. James is a Portland artist, director, advocate for Black artists, being one himself, and an equity facilitator. We're very lucky to have his voice and his perspective on this program. James, I'll let you take it from here.
3: Hello, everyone. I'm James Dixon. You're listening to Our Fires, three episodes exploring histories of Black Portland through stories and song.
0: Still home.
3: Part 1, Obi. I ain't got long. They came for the work. They heard that there was work in the growing state of Oregon and that the work was for everyone and anyone. They came from everywhere, from Kansas, from the Carolinas, from bywaters, and country townships. The call had been most widely made by the night porters across the railroads of the United States. They heard that the industrialist named Kaiser had ships to build and needed laborers of all skills to help in America's new war effort. The porters, always the gossips of the North American train lines, spread the word that this industrialist was paying good wages, and had plans to build the largest wartime housing project in the country. A community that would be called, but never officially classified as, the second largest city in the state of Oregon, Mr. Kaiser had plans to build a place called Vanport.
2: Okay, so a little context here. If you hadn't guessed it, our setting is the state of Oregon in the early 1940s. Oregon, up until this point, had remained what you could call an isolated state on America's west coast. The population was pretty small and fairly conservative.
3: And white. If you hadn't heard much about Oregon's racist history, look it up. But just to give you an idea, a black person could not legally live in Oregon until 1922. And the state of Oregon didn't ratify the 15th Amendment to give black men the right to vote until 1959. So it's not really surprising that Oregon's black population was only about 2,000 people in 1940.
2: Which was all about to change with the aspirations of one Henry J. Kaiser, a famous industrialist who had promised a ship a day coming out of the Pacific Northwest as his contribution to America's defenses. At the time, Kaiser was a strong voice in the World War II effort. He had already been building cargo boats for the British, and by the time the U.S. engaged in the war, he was a natural choice in heading up America's shipbuilding effort. It didn't hurt that he already owned three massive shipyards in the Portland area. And he was prepared to expand these operations and scale them to meet federal needs.
3: Which is where the labor announcements came from, right? He started spreading the news on the trains.
2: Yeah, that's right, James. So apparently in Oregon during the early part of the 20th century, while there were African-Americans living here, jobs were scarce and mostly in the hospitality and transportation industries. Many young men worked as porters slash train night watchmen, working the graveyard shifts and traveling on trains going all over the states. And these were perfect spokespeople for Kaiser. These guys could get the word out all over about the good paying jobs in Oregon. And Kaiser
3: was open to whomever, even though Oregon had this racist past.
2: Yeah. Well, this is maybe where it could be said that Kaiser gets a little bit more credit than he's due. I mean, he was a capitalist and his need was to have as many bodies as possible packed into his shipyard so he could sell these huge military contracts. But at the same time, he was kind of an original quote unquote maverick. So we 're jumping ahead a bit here, but when he built Vanport, he didn't really ask for permission. He knew he had people from all walks of life coming to Oregon to work these shipyards, and he knew that the Oregon government had been slow to accept federal housing money, and that Portland's mayor was racist to boot quoted in the newspaper: "Portland can
3: absorb only a minimum of negroes without upsetting the city's regular life." The mayor said this
2: that is not a flattering,
3: not quote. a flattering <laughs> quote.
2: But yeah, knowing all of this, he just simply went over the state's head. He went right to FDR and got the funding. He bought the land, made the plans to build the second largest city in Oregon, and then went and told the local government about it afterwards. He didn't care who worked for him. He knew there was demand to build and wanted everyone who needed a steady paycheck.
0: Enter O.B. Hill. Well, still away. I was born... Still away, on July the 10th, 1941 still away in Birmingham, Alabama.
3: Opie Hill is a writer, historian, and storyteller living in Portland, Oregon. He is a survivor of the Vanport flood.
0: My father was a um, shagger on a garbage truck. But the shagger does he hangs onto the side of the truck and the driver stops and the shagger goes picks up the garbage cans from the side of the curve and dumps them in the truck runs along and picks up cans till it's empty then they go to the next block and then he hangs on again and then he lets off and he he repeats the thing until the garbage truck is uh, full well, some kind of way, he got in a dispute with the truck driver and ended up knocking him out. The truck driver was a Caucasian man. And uh, at that particular time, if you knocked out a, what they called a white man in the South, uh, you may be hanging from a limb. So he had no uh, alternative but to leave the South. At that particular time, there was... Shipbuilding going on in the Pacific Northwest. There was a shortage of workers in this area, and so my father heard about this, and he came up here and worked in the shipyards. And finally, uh, he sent for us, and I was about four years old at that time. That was about 1945, and we we moved up to the Pacific Northwest to a housing project called Bagley Downs.
3: Obi's story actually begins in Washington. His father, having had to escape trouble in the South, moved to the Pacific Northwest to find work, and then sent for the rest of his family. The family's initial stay wasn't long, however. About six months into their new life, Obi's mother became pregnant with his then-unborn sister, and the family moved back to Birmingham to have her birth performed by their trusted midwife, a common practice in Southern Black communities since many birthing clinics did not serve African Americans in the 40s. By the time Obie's new sister was born, Obie's father had changed locations and upgraded the family's living situation to the newly built Vanport.
0: Well, we waited around and, and, and she was wondering if uh, if she was ever going to get back up here, and finally he, he did send for her. And when he sent for her and us, he had moved from Bagley Downs to Vanport.
3: As was common at the time, Obi's father had learned about the war efforts promised fortune through the network of sleeper porters working trains in the South.
0: What happened was the neighborhood sleeping car porters union would go down to the South and tell people about all this money that people were making up here. And uh, that's how my father came up here. In fact, the, the majority of the people who came during my generation whose parents brought them up here, all of us come up here around the same time for the shipbuilding industry. For the first time, a lot of the people who were there were making a decent wage. Now, they didn't discriminate against people. They needed workers, so everybody got paid a the similar the wage. And, uh, and that was a lot of money.
3: And so, news about these wages spread fast. And in less than a year's time, the black population of Oregon had grown from approximately 2,000 to over 10,000. But what was missing for this flood of workers was housing. Hence why Henry J was so intent to build his development. So the workers would come and they would stay.
2: The goal was to build 9,900 dwelling units to house over 42,000 people. And build as fast as possible, which meant Vanport was built efficiently and quickly, but not necessarily to last. Instead of laying down concrete, the foundations were wood, for example. And while the structures were solid, they weren't always ideal homes. There were complaints that the materials were shoddy and that the walls were thin. Let's just say you got to know your neighbors quickly.
3: But despite criticism and doubts, Kaiser succeeded, and in 1943, Vanport was built. It cost $26 million to build. So, Noah, what was life like for families that lived in Vanport?
2: You know, that's kind of a tough question. I've heard opposing views on this topic. In some instances, it is depicted as this integrated community ahead of its time. It was, after all, a housing development that existed before the civil rights movement that had integrated schools, hospitals, movie theaters, and other public amenities. But there is also historical evidence that the, quote, neighborhoods were very separate.
0: Well, (laughs) they— They lived in a segregated community, as I said. So it was normal for them to live and have fun amongst each other. The only difference was they had money. So they didn't miss any, uh, any integration because there was none, and they were used to uh, being by themselves in, in, uh, in segregated communities. And Oregon, of course, uh, was like that. There were definitely white sections and black sections.
2: And the white sections saw a bit more love from the housing authorities, if you catch my drift. But I like to think of Vanport as the wartime housing development that could. A town that was progressive out of necessity, smack dab in the heart of what has been a historically racist region, full of citizens of all colors striving for the American dream, Who knows what could have become of a place like that?
3: In case you had already guessed it, or if you're familiar with the region, there is no longer a place called Vanport in Oregon. May 1948. Although the Second World War had ended, more than 18,000 people still resided in Vanport. Some of its residents had even come to settle in Vanport after the war. Portland had too little housing inventory and high rents for many of the Vanport residents to live anywhere. The winter that year had been long and cold. There was record snowpack on Oregon's tallest mountain, Mount Hood, which directly feeds into many of the region's rivers. By the time May had come and temperatures were on the rise, many started to wonder whether or not the Columbia River, Oregon's largest river, would crest and potentially overflow into rural farmland and even residential areas. It didn't help that May had also seen a good deal of rain. And yet, up until mid-May in the summer of 48, the citizens of Vanport were being told the dikes built to hold the river away from the city would hold. Though the water coming down the river was double the flow in cubic feet it had been in years. Even as the Army Corps of Engineers was called upon to sandbag and fortify the dikes, the Housing Authority of Portland still issued a notice on Sunday, May 29th, that the dikes would hold and that citizens of Vanport would have plenty of time to
0: get out. What happened is... um... We would go to movies. Uh, They had a movie out there, at theater, and and we were egging on to go to that movie that day. And Mother said, no, uh, you're not going to go because uh, the water is high. And and so we were sort of out moping, mad. She used to say, don't squint your face up like a prune. You're not going to that movie today.
3: Like Obi's mother, people remained in Vanport and continued on their Memorial Day weekend plans. They had been told that if the water were to
2: come, it wouldn't be until midway through the week and they would be warned. On the morning of Memorial Day, the Housing Authority issued the statement, Remember, dikes are safe at present. You will be warned if necessary. You will have time to leave. Don't get
0: excited. Mama was there cooking a ham. and uh, And so we were waiting for that, you know, pineapples all around the tops and um, all kind of other food that went along with that. That was going to be a big meal day. Daddy had went out partying that night, so he was still in the bed sleep. <laughs> and so we went outside, and we were just playing around, and a police officer came up on a motorcycle and said, go in and tell your, your parents that the dike has broke. We said, the dike has broke, yeah. And so we ran upstairs and told Mama. And she went and tried to wake my father up and then grabbed things to try to get us uh, all together and, and out of there. And uh, we all went downstairs and when we went outside, a bus drove up. And uh, when the guy opened the door, the bus driver opened the door, water came out. And he said, I'm the last one out of there, get in. And so we jumped on the bus and, and went up uh, uh, Denver Avenue to uh, Kenton. And then he let us out. And by that time, there was a whole... Uh, Uh, lines of people coming up out of their cars and walking and everything else and and uh we uh spent the night at uh a school that's up there and uh salvation army helped by bringing a bunch of army carts and they had the um the whole gymnasium just lined up with, with these carts that they canvas that they folded out, and we slept there that night.
3: At approximately 4.15 in the afternoon, part of the Vanport Railway Embankment was overcome by water and breached, sending a 10-foot wall of water into Vanport. It engulfed just about everything. Cars were flipped over and carried downriver. Complete dwellings were lifted from the foundations and swept away. People were able to save next to nothing of their worldly possessions. The loss of life was reported slight. Fifteen were said to be taken by the flood, but Vanport was declared a complete loss.
1: All the water, it's getting higher than the angels fly. Oh, the water you can rise on the water Because the water's coming I know that we're all gonna die
0: We got out of there just in the nick of time, believe me. Uh, when, when we got up to the top of the hill at Denver and we looked over there, we could see the water coming and, some of the houses floating and stuff because they were just on concrete foundations and they just lifted, it. the water lifted them up out of there. The only thing that my mother brought out of there Savage was a radio. She had a little portable radio that she brought out and then when we were there she plugged that in the wall and was listening to that and and she was worried about my father Uh, and because he didn't come out with us. We, we had to leave. And it was a couple of days before we even saw him. She was really worried about him, and when she did see him, he had this big old smile on his face. He said, man, that ham was good.
3: Obi makes light of it here, a tribute to the resiliency of his family. But in further conversations with him, he points to the fact that Vanport really was symbolic of how hard it was for African-Americans to put down roots in Portland during the 20th century. The flood caused many Vanport citizens to relocate. Obi's family was put up by a church in the southeast neighborhood of Montevilla, an unfamiliar neighborhood with a
2: marginal black population. The opposing view is that the flood was actually a buoy for the integration of African-Americans in Portland. When many of the families of Vanport had to relocate, they did so in north and northeast Portland, an area that had yet to see much of a black population.
3: Context is everything, though, Noah. Let's have a listen to Obi. Represent this portion of our chat with him unedited.
0: What I became aware of was that, uh, you know what uh, shooting craps is?
2: Yeah, the dice game.
0: Yeah, I, and it's not like uh, Las Vegas. Uh, they had casinos there. And uh, it's legal. And these gamblers are stable. And they make their living there. But a floating crab game is illegally shooting dice. And uh, like in Oregon, you can't do that uh, until recently. Uh, the gambling controlled here was mainly horses and dogs. You know what a greyhound is. What
2: the greyhound dog?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Montgomery Kennel Club. Yeah. Uh, they they used to raise dogs uh, and uh, the Portland, Portland Meadows. And then there's Portland Meadows where the horses ran. Mm-hmm. And out there at the Portland Meadows uh, used to be a place close by called Vanport Mm -hmm. and that was a place that I once lived along with these other places that I read, walk, and talk about. And I began to notice that there was a certain amount of people in Portland who were targeted as if they were operating a floating crab game. And they began to to recognize that they had been moved from pillar to post. And permanent instability was their reality.
2: So are you talking about the African-American population
0: in Portland? Of course. Uh, today, for instance, I went and I saw a couple of people, and they were interested in uh, having a, a festival, a music festival, and uh, they're going to hold it down uh, near the old Coliseum, uh, Rose Quarters. Yeah, okay. uh, and, and what they want to do is make sure that people understand that at one time, when you cross the steel bridge and you entered on the uh, uh, northeast side of the steel bridge, you were entering the black community. And they want—they were talking about uh, nightclubs and restaurants that were there at that particular time, and they just want people to know that that's a intricate part of our history that no longer exists. And now you got rose quarters and as well as Coliseums. So that's an example of the movement of this floating crab game.
3: What Obi is talking about is basically a preview of the upcoming episodes of this series.
0: I'm saying that in Portland, there is uh, people being moved around all the time. And stability is not something that goes from one generation to the to the next and, and i've i've witnessed this because i've experienced this
3: more of the truth that ob hill talks about in episode 2
1: so take me on down my father the winds and the floods and the water take me on
2: down that's our show everyone thanks for listening Join us for our next episode when we go further into these stories and into the history of Portland, Oregon, the whitest city in the United States.
1: the 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 music you've
2: been hearing throughout this episode was brought to you by Ryan Soley and Sarah Clark, who collaborated on the original song, Let the Wind Carry Me Home. For this episode. You can find Ryan's music at the, and, the and Sarah's music at dirtyrevival.com. This episode was brought to you in part by the Regional Arts and Culture Council. Big thanks to xray.fm, Open Signal PDX, and KBOO Community Radio for helping us with Studio Time. This episode was produced by me, Noah Dunham. Our co-host is James Dixon. Consulting producers Cleo Davis, Donna Maxey, Obi Hill, James Dixon, and Jamal Landers. Sound editing done by Matt Harmon. Special thanks to Ron Atwood, Rebecca Atwood Youngstrom, Phil Peterson, the Portland Mercury, and Vortex Music Magazine for your kind support of the show.
1: I believe on through. Like healing waters do. of them sing